Hi, friends. I'm Sydney Warner Bruman, and this is I Go to Therapy, a show where I talk to creatives about mental health. We record this podcast on Treaty 13 land, which is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. To learn more about the land we occupy, please visit our show notes. Canadian soprano Rose Hegley facilitates artistically rigorous performance experiences that explore the extremes of human vocal and artistic expression in 20th and 21st century art music. Working across disciplines including experimental theatre, silent film, chamber music, improvisation, and choral singing, Rose sings to create a space to heal souls and bodies and to allow humans to embrace all of their complexity and humanity. Highlights include performing the world premiere of Ande Vore's Krononhoten Thologos with Guerrilla Opera and leading ensemble performances in Arnold Schoenberg's Piero Luner in Kien Kalilien's To Watch the Sunrise in memory of Abbas Kiarostami at Clark University as an artist-in-residence. She has performed at Boston's Institute of Contemporary Art, Jordan Hall, the Castro Theatre, Carnegie Hall, and the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. We are here with Rose Hegley today. Hello, Rose. Hi, Sydney. It's so lovely to be here. Thank you so much for having me. We are so lucky to have you here. Um, diving right in, is there any piece of art you've interacted with recently, like a book, uh, a play, an album, a song, a movie, some kind of art that you've interacted with that you've just been obsessed with lately? Yes. So there's this jazz pianist, Jerry Allen. Unfortunately, she passed away three years ago, but her first album, The Printmakers from 1984, is such a beautiful album. And I especially love the first track, A Celebration of All Life, as the percussionist in her trio is making all of these wonderful mouth pop noises and he's playing his cheeks, he's doing body percussion. And you hear that for a few minutes and then you get this really um, just vivacious start when she eventually comes in like five, six minutes into the track. But her playing is so beautiful. She really is amazing at playing both in the free improv style and then also more more traditional styles of jazz as well. Amazing, amazing pianist. So would highly recommend Jerry Allen to all of you. That's amazing. It's so great that I get to sort of create a podcast with a secret motive of just getting everyone's best art recommendations. It's as if sort of none of these episodes will actually come out and I'm just like writing a secret list of everyone's favorite songs and movies and stuff. And that was the entire purpose for all of this. And so honestly, it's a win-win for me either way. (laughs) It's good. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this transition from art as a passion becoming your profession, because it's definitely like as a writer, there was definitely whether I sort of didn't notice it slowly over time or whether it was from a few key moments in my life. There was definitely this very noticeable transition from me writing just 
as sort of a hobby and for creativity and cathartically to when I decided like I'm a writer and I'm trying to be a professional writer. And I know you as a singer are a professional singer now. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit on how that transition from passion to profession has been for you. Absolutely. That is an amazing question. Um, So I actually started voice lessons when I was very, very young at the age of eight. And you'll find this funny, but um, basically I had been started on piano at the age of four. And at the time, I did not like it. I was just like, I refuse to practice. Um, I think I said to my parents, I wish I were a beaver so that I could eat the piano. So... (laughs) (laughs) So just this very young, strong-minded person and music still, um, even when I, I like to say I retired from piano at age seven, but then um, <laughs> my parents noticed that I really love to sing and they thought, okay, so, um, and as you know, Sydney, um, music is so kind of integral in the fabric of the Hegley family. Yes. So um, the parents were like, oh, Rose doesn't have an instrument but she sings and she's actually sounds good. So <laughs> let's get her into voice lessons. And, and I started and haven't stopped since. And so I would say when I was younger, artistic spaces were just places where I felt really free. I also did acting as well growing up. And that was awesome. In my teen years though, like early teens, like 13, 14, I started to get more professional opportunities, like performing in the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra's kids concert series. That was really, really fun. Singing the role of Damon in my former music teacher's production of Aces and Galatea, um, performing with the Vancouver Opera Children's Chorus. So it was interesting that the professional side of things came very early on. Mm -hmm. And then when I was 14, my parents... um, got new jobs in Toronto and I was able to take lessons at the Royal Conservatory headquarters, which was amazing. Um, But there I'd gone from being like this big fish in a small pond in Vancouver to being a very tiny fish Mm -hmm. in a very huge pond in Toronto and seeing all these other singers my age who were just as good, if not way better than me. At the time, considering I'd been doing this young professional work when I was very young, there was a bit of a crisis like, should I actually do this if I'm If I'm not the best, whatever that means, even though we all know the best is totally a false construct. Mm -hmm. It was, it was hard. I would say my teen years in that sense were not particularly easy. And when I graduated high school, I knew I wanted to do music, but I didn't feel completely ready to pursue it in university. So I actually took a year off and was able to focus solely on musical training. And I think during that year, not having to balance school and music, I was really able to just focus on my craft, rediscover my love for it, be very playful with it and rediscover music in an exciting way. And I would say um, university, I was able to kind of relax a bit and really focus on studies. And so the professional side of things wound down, though I will say um, in the past few years, especially since 2018, when I graduated from my master's, um, I've definitely noticed um, a transition from kind of using music as fun, exploring music, being a student to this professional mindset. And I will say personally, I feel like I've had to become in some ways a lot more self-protective and put up firmer boundaries and have more walls in a certain sense, just to have this more professional um, demeanor rather than being very silly and and going from joking to making music right away, which is what I would do with my friends and still do. But it's I would say it's not always easy because um, when passion becomes profession, there's 
the stakes get higher. And especially when you rely on your passion to make income, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in one's head, at least in my head. Um, and I feel like something that I'm trying to deconstruct right now is the idea of money being tied to my self-worth. Um, also the idea. Oh, yeah. Yes, it's, it's huge, isn't it? Oh, my it's, gosh. It's gigantic. So deconstructing that notion and also deconstructing the sense of being the best contemporary music soprano, whatever that is, and really defining my own version for success that's not dependent on what concert halls have you sung in? What, which composers have you worked with? Are you accepted by people in your space? And I will say that those things, this desire for acceptance, this sense of, I don't know if anyone else experiences, but this sense of former boundaries, kind of feeling like you have to put on a mask sometimes. It's one of the harder transitions to the professional world. And so I really try to have collaborations or just ways in which I can engage with music without having to worry about the income piece as much. And I find that it's it's a good balance to these more professional high stakes collaborations, if you will. So interesting, honestly. And before I get to my next question, I did want to ask about, um, you said that you took a gap year between going to university, right? Yes. What would you say to students or sort of younger people training to go into singing in a professional sense in terms of this sort of societal pressure and rush to be successful, this sort of pressure to be the prodigy, the person who's starting even younger and younger, the person who's successful even younger. Like I know definitely in writing, there's, despite the fact that a lot of people publish when they're older, there's a significant stigma around that and more of this sort of fetishization of young talent. And so I would definitely say that taking a, like I applied to my master's in fine art in fourth year and I didn't get in and I remember thinking like my creative career is over because how on earth could I take a break in between because like I'll be 22 by then how can I be 22 without having done x y and z if that is like I was sort of counting on my young age as a way to sell my brand a little bit. And so like, I was wondering if you had any advice for people who were younger thinking about a career in music and really like worrying and stressing about that timing and rush of it. That is, thank you so much for bringing up this point. It's significant. I mean, our society really does fetishize youth. And in my opinion, it's, it doesn't make any sense because as we go throughout our lives, we constantly grow, we constantly change. And I will say to younger musicians, younger artists, it is okay to take time. And personally, I have found that when taking time and when not trying to cram everything in, that is actually where the most personal and professional growth occurs. And I do think that, of course, um, it's hard when society tells us one thing, which is if you're not successful, it's so hard to, because there's not even a really clear definition of what success means. But if you're not successful when you're young, then you'll never be successful. But in terms of singers, in general, the human voice typically doesn't fully mature until about age 30, if not even older. Wow. And so many singers in Western classical music go on singing professionally, like on big stages until they're like in their 60s, their 70s. And... 
I would say to younger artists, it's about playing the long game mm-hmm. and really pacing yourself and making sure to respect your instrument because trying to do too much or that your voice necessarily isn't ready for, it can actually lead to injury. It can lead to strain. So pacing mm-hmm. is a really, really good thing. And taking time is a good thing as well. And you'll have a much longer career and a more artistically rich career if you don't try to do everything right away. Like it's it's nice to think about saving things for when you're 60 or 70 and, oh, what will I be doing then? Rather than being like, oh, I have to do this now and this now and this now and this now. So exactly, yeah, play the long game, be kind to yourself and define your own version of success. That is incredible advice. I love that. You spoke like a little bit on um, the sort of competitive nature of professional singing, sort of about like your musical reputation in terms of which composers you've worked with, which other singers you've collaborated with, where have you sung, all of these things. I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit on the competitive nature of the music world and its effects on your mental health. This is definitely a big, a very big and very important question. I appreciate you asking it. It can be very hard sometimes. And it fundamentally, I feel like, comes down to resources in the arts. And at least in the U.S., um, the arts are not that publicly funded. Um, A lot of stuff comes from private donors. And so as a result, because society values STEM uh, more than arts and humanities, um, there's certain money sources that everyone is applying to and it's all like oh you need to get that and it's not easy being in a profession where there are very few financial resources and where everyone kind of is clamoring for the same grants similar opportunities and I will admit that it's been hard this kind of competitive nature for resources when fundamentally as a human being my belief is that there is more than enough for everybody yeah And when we work together and when we embrace a collaborative mindset, that's really about supporting everyone's growth. It's, I mean, that's fundamentally my core values and my belief, but it's hard when the manifestation looks very different and people can say, oh, I'm, I believe in all these things. But I think the big question I have is how do I create a more supportive environment where there are resources for everyone and where we can increase accessibility and still ensure that artists get paid well. And I will say it's the competitive nature can get pretty difficult sometimes. And I know personally this need, I don't know about you, but at least I am a huge people pleaser and I feel like I need to be liked by everyone. And if someone in the music industry doesn't like me, that actually does take a pretty big toll on my mental health. And there's a sense, oh, I won't be successful because this person doesn't like me and they hold power in this kind of way and they have resources in this way and I won't have a career. And fundamentally the fear is not having enough. And if I'm not liked, I will be rejected. And as someone who's very anxious, I typically go down the spirals and it typically ends in like this very, very sad place. And I make light of it now, but I will admit it can be really, really, really hard sometimes. And so really trying to take care of myself. Meditation has been huge. Being in connection with the spiritual community has been huge too. Ensuring that I take time every single day to do things like journal, reconnect with my core values, try and figure out my identity outside of being a musician. I think all of this is really huge and it's very important in navigating some of the trickier parts of the industry. I definitely have a couple questions to go off of that. 
In terms of accessibility in academia specifically, how do you think, it's difficult to sort of say like we as a society, but how do you think, I guess on a smaller scale, um, that arts programs in academia can work to be more accessible in terms of leading to the creation of a musical canon that is more diverse? That's, again, such an important question. And I think that equity in the arts is a really important and fundamental goal to this. And I feel like it really comes down to education and educational initiatives, because from a young age, at least, music lessons are so expensive. They are. They are so expensive. And so many families and so many communities just don't have the resources to even pay for them. And so I would say Mm -hmm. um, music education initiatives, um, especially in schools, and also music that musical education systems that are not based on Western classical music is the best type of music, totally deconstructing that, um, providing a decolonized music education curriculum is so, so, so important. And I will say that, in my opinion, it really does come down to education and making it accessible that way and having as many free or low cost programs as possible. And also within the musical training, really being mindful of lens and bias as well. Yes. And also ensuring that diverse faculty are hired and that the values of equity and decolonization are just present in every single facet, whether it's the curriculum itself, the faculty who are there, um, compensation for the faculty as well, while keeping it all as accessible as possible to um, musicians or to to people who want to study music from all different backgrounds and socioeconomic income levels. So I feel like it's the type of thing that needs to be accessed from so many different lenses. Definitely. And it's a, it's a multi-pronged approach. And I think it's, you can't just say, we will do this one thing. You have to go at it from every single perspective. Definitely think structurally, like say more in-school programs are offered than the institutions that weigh programs against one another and have internal biases based on, oh, this is a more sort of inherently better program based on my personal biases about what is a good and what is a bad program and based on racial bias and socioeconomic bias and the age of participants and who's teaching it and all of these things. If institutions aren't sort of trained on recognizing how to select students that get different kind of training, like not based on their own biases, then there's sort of not as big of a point as doing like individual projects and things like that. I definitely needs like a really big structural upheaval from lots of different directions, but it does start small. It starts with people offering education in ways that aren't strictly expensive lessons by white teachers who only do Western music. It starts with even the canon of music not just being westernized and upper class, right, as well. So I definitely agree with so much of that. So you touched a little bit on um, your journaling and meditation, but um, what are some other ways, um, generally or specifically, um, how you are personally nurturing your creativity and your mental well-being, especially during you know, a global pandemic? <laughs> really, really good question. So I, 
I mean, I touched on this a bit earlier. I try to journal and meditate daily. Spotify has a playlist called Spotify Wellness, and I listen to that every day. And they have excerpts from different podcasts that are used to kind of have these guided meditations, guided writings. One of them that I love is called The Daily Shine, and it was created by two women of color, and it's amazing. They have so many wonderful podcasts, and they're really they're really doing the work to make mental health resources more accessible and available to everyone, which I which I love. Wake Up, Wind Down is another one that I use for journaling prompts, focusing on my goals. In addition to that, I meditate with different online communities about three times a week, four times a week. And on Sunday mornings, I attend virtual church service um, through my wonderful church in Weston, Massachusetts, the First Parish Church in Winston. And it's, I will say that actually having spirituality and bringing faith into my life every single day is huge. And it does connect me to something much greater than myself. That's, and so I feel a lot less attached to this small, puny ego that's um, very scared of everything. And it's, it's so helpful in that sense. And then creatively, musically, I'm involved in so many different collaborations and Personally, I love that because I'm exploring different ways of using my voice every single day. And that's really, really, really fun. That's incredible. That collaborative work is so nice because I really think in some ways it takes the it takes some of that that competitive pressure off of sort of like even even projects that I want to sort of be experimental about or do for fun feel like they have to sort of be on brand for me and feel like they have to further my career in some way or like be profitable in some sense. It's hard to sort of either have a personal project or have a hobby that doesn't lead to like an immediate profit or furthering your career in some way now. And so I feel like collaborations allow me space to play, especially like when you're working with a fellow singer or writer or creator rather than feeling as though you're working against people really, really helps my creative process a lot. Plus just getting to learn from them and unlearn what I've learned and then create something totally different in that space of collaboration is such a wonderful thing. I love that you've experienced that. Collaboration is amazing for all of those reasons. It's literally, mm-hmm. it's it's like a huge part. It's like why I do what I do, just because I love other humans. I love working with other humans. I love when they challenge me, when they open my mind, and when we can just work together to create art that's far more awesome, I guess, than anything that either one of us could create by ourselves. Yeah, I had a cross-disciplinary collaboration for London's LOMP reading series this time last year where I worked with a musician, Chenny Burkle, and she she turned some of my poems into songs. And then I took some of her songs and wrote poetry about her songs. And she actually liked one of the songs that she had written about a poem I had written so much that she put it on her upcoming album so we ended up like writing a song together that 
never would have existed as such a cool thing if she had been writing a song on her own or if I had been writing a poem on my own. And it sort of exists in this poetic musical space that wouldn't have existed otherwise is really cool. I love it. It's this, po- it's this process of translation and retranslation and sharing. It's that sounds like a beautiful collaboration. I'm so glad for both of you that you were able to experience that. Thank you. Is there anything that you are wanting to speak on that we haven't talked about yet? Um, so I would like to actually discuss a little bit about really being aware of mind and body when it comes to, to mental health. And so I am actually currently experiencing a little bit of injury. Um, my TMJ joint in my jaw is a little bit inflamed. And as a singer, that's not a great thing. And I will say that it happened, talking about injury, it happened over the course of many, many months, actually, of just clutching, clenching my teeth and grinding my teeth. And the fount of that was stress and anxiety. And so for musicians, for artists, for anyone listening to this who is dealing with injury, I would just offer to you that it's not something to be ashamed of. In my case, it was a manifestation of just feeling a lot of things and a lot of chronic stress and anxiety. And it's it's okay. I would say that in terms of healing my jaw and just embracing this time and this process to be quiet, it's, it's actually a really, really good thing overall. And I'm really excited to get back to my projects, of course, when this heals. But um, I do think that taking a holistic approach to mind, body, soul, spirit, um, and integrating all of the different parts of ourselves is very, very important. That's amazing. Thank you so much for that. So before our very last question, I just want to thank you again so much, Rose, for coming on and speaking to us and having this lovely conversation. You are very insightful. You are very lovely. And I just want to thank you. Thank you. You are also so insightful and lovely. Seriously, it's been such a pleasure and such a joy. So if you had no limitations, uh, money, burdens, time, fear, what would you be creating right now, if anything at all? <laughs> sorry, sorry, it's just like, I, just like so many different things. Um, I added that last part because the last two people I asked this question were like, I wouldn't create anything. What do you mean? If would be no pressure to create anything. So I would finally take a break. And I'm like, that is a great answer. So I'm just going to tack that on so that people know it's an available option to not create if they don't feel like it. So um, well, this is a very secret personal dream, but <gasps> I, I really want to start taking a holistic approach to music and environmentalism. And I, I really want to do more of this type of work. So looking at how we can create um, processes for environmentally responsible performance practice, ensuring that we're that doing so is done in an equitable way and that it's done in a way that's very respectful and not this kind of like Western, let's, this is the, this is the, the right way, but just really come at it from a very holistic perspective, a very intersectional perspective. And ideally I would... I want to create and I will create a performance series that specifically creates performance experiences that are environmentally responsible.
How I Go to Therapy is hosted by Sydney Warner Ruman and produced by Christian Hegley. Original music and sound mixing by Christian Hegley. You can find us on igototherapypodcast.simplecast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a review. It would rock our world, and that's not an understatement. We love you. Thank you. See you next time.